Hey, everybody. Um, you don't mind taking a seat? Um, if I haven't met you, uh, my name is Claude. Um, good to have you here. Um, Redeemer, we're a new church in the city, a uh, church for believers, seekers, and doubters. Um, and that is because the gospel is sufficient uh, for, uh, for all people. Um, and we believe the gospel is needed by all people. So um, that is our heart as a new uh, church in the city. Um, we're trying to help people follow Jesus, know God, and uh, love others in Jesus' name. And we definitely want you to be a part of that if, um, if you're um, looking for a community to belong to. Um, so along those lines, if you look down in front of you, you'll see a little card. Um, that is a Connect card. You'll see a pen hopefully there with it as well. Um, so if you want to get plugged in, you can fill that out. Um, one thing you could do with that, if you are not connected in this way uh, already, is to just fill that out with your name and your email, and then there's a little line that says, uh, invite me to the city. It's where we post a lot of our events, different things that are going on um, here with the people at Redeemer, so it'd be great to get connected in that way if you're not, um, and you can just leave that back in the pouch, and then we'll follow up uh, with you from there. Um, so we are, we are flying through this series, um, our new series, Questioning Christianity. We are... I think oh, half half done. Um, it's gone by quick. I can't believe January is almost over. Um, I was with some friends and I was complaining about how January was almost over, like two days into it, um, and they made fun of me. But now I can really say that January is almost over um, because it because it actually is. So um, this series uh, has been uh, really exciting one for me, um, and hopefully been beneficial for you um, if you've been here. We have invite cards for the series that outline the topics at the uh, connection table and just invite cards to church in general, please grab some of those. They're useless, um, particularly the series ones. They're useless in three more weeks. So grab some, hand them out. Um, if you just end up recycling them, that's better that they left this building than they stayed here. Um, so, so please grab some of those on your way out. Uh, this week, the topic we're going to look at, um, we are going to look at the question of hell. We're going to look at the topic of hell, which sometimes is not talked about a lot, and people just have a million questions about. So we are, we're going to jump into it. We're going to talk about it. Previously, um, previously we had talked about, to open the series, we talked about the question, how can I know that God exists? Uh, the second question we looked at is, um, what do I do with Jesus' words of exclusivity, that there is one way to God? And then uh, last week, um, or no, that was last week. Yeah, so this is the third week. So now we're, we're talking about the topic of hell. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. And then we are going to uh, jump in to, to this topic and the typical questions that people have around this doctrine and this topic. All right? So, so pray with me if you, if you would. God, um, we, we do thank you that you are gracious, that you are merciful, that you're kind, and that you're patient. Um, God, as we just sing some of those songs that, that, that we sung, God, there's a lot that just comes up to my mind and my heart, God, of just... Um, just how I'm prone and how I think if we're going to be honest, all of us are prone to put something else at the center of our lives. So to sing, um, God, be my everything, be my delight. God, that is, um, that's what we need. So God, I pray that you would help us now as we turn to your word, where you, where you reveal your, yourself and your nature and your character um, and the pinnacle of your, your revelation, uh, Jesus Christ in, in the gospel and what he's accomplished there. God, that is... That's the centerpiece of your word, so help us now as we open it up to see it rightly, to see him rightly. God, would, would the results of hearing you speak to us through your word, would the results of that be you being our treasure, you being our delight, and us finding our identity, not in other good things or in other lesser things, God, but in belonging to you as your beloved child through the work of Jesus. 
So God, I ask for um, myself, for every person here, God, the things that we have brought into this room, the different things that we are dealing with, uh, the things that we know we're going to deal with, God, help us put those aside and help us to recognize that you're here and you're present with us and that you want us to see Jesus and you want to teach us today. You want to encourage us and you want to lead us to you and into your grace today. So God, we ask for your spirit's help and presence in that. God, that we would rightly understand the scriptures, that we would see Jesus, and that you would help us to respond in a way that is right and good for us and brings honor and glory to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at this question, um, this topic of hell. Sometimes it gets phrased in a couple, the question around this gets phrased in a couple different ways. Um, on one hand, it might get phrased like this, how can a loving God send people to hell? The question maybe um, if you're a Christian has been asked of you, maybe uh, if you're a Christian, it's a question that you've asked yourself or maybe have been afraid to actually ask it. Um, if you're here and you're not sure what you believe, you're trying to figure that out, that's maybe a question that you've asked of others or you're asking now. Um, or that question can also be phrased in this way, well, what, what could a loving God, how could a loving God have anything to do with hell? And that's kind of what we're going to look at. Um, Surprisingly, depending on how well you, how familiar you are with the New Testament, you'll find that um, Jesus is the person that speaks of hell the most. Um, and we'll kind of talk about why as we get through this text. But um, in uh, the passage we're going to look at today, we're going to look at Luke 16, uh, one of the gospel accounts in, uh, in the New Testament. Jesus is uh, doing kind of, this is a section of Luke where Jesus is doing um, just kind of uh, miscellaneous uh, teaching. And uh, so he's teaching various parables, various topics, and then he gets to this parable that we're going to look at, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So first, what I want to do is I want to just read the parable first, um, and then explain a little bit of the context. Um, to give you a little bit of background on, par on parables, parables are not necessarily, um, a mistake that can happen with parables is to take everything in them and equate them to something else. So like if there's a tree in the parable, you'll say, oh, well, the tree means this. Okay, there was a seed in the parable, so the parable, the seed means this. That's not really how parables actually work. Um, there's just like a larger teaching under them. So with that said, I want to read this parable. Hopefully it will, um, it will shock you, um, because that's what parables do. And then we'll kind of walk through what is Jesus saying and meaning here, and then what does the Bible and scriptures teach about hell, and why is it actually not what we often think it is. So let's look there. If you have a Bible, you can flip Luke 16. Uh, if your Bible's digital, you can turn it on. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one um, when you leave if you want. And uh, if you don't want to take one, we'll just put it up here and you can just look at it. But you can't take the screen. Um, so let me, let me uh, start us off. Luke 16, 19. Jesus speaking. It says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in his 
or in, in like manner, bad things. Now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, so here's the context of this parable before we kind of work through and ask the question, what is Jesus saying here and what does this mean? Um, Here's a little bit of context. So as I mentioned, Jesus has been teaching at length um, in this section of scripture. If you have your Bible um, on or with you, um, look up to verse 13 and 14 of chapter 16. If you don't, I'm going to read them to you. But it's really important, anytime you're reading the Bible, to actually look at the context, to look at what's around it, will help you give clues into what the text itself that you're looking at is saying. Here's what Jesus is doing. Here's the audience. He is speaking to Pharisees, um, and they were religious leaders at the time, the type of people who would be up here doing this, the type of people that you would see at the grocery store or the market and have respect for, um, the type of people that would be known in the community and would have uh, a lot of uh, reverence Um, coming their way. He's speaking to them. And in the verses before this parable, Jesus says this in Luke 16, 13, 14, and 15. These are Jesus' words. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So that that closes uh, Jesus' teaching in verse um, 13 of chapter 16. And then afterwards, Luke adds this um, description to to the section. And keep in mind, these come a few verses before this parable. Luke adds this after that quote from Jesus. Luke says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Him is Jesus. And Jesus said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. So those are the verses that come before this parable. And why is that important? Why am I spending four minutes to explain that? Well, this is why this is incredibly important because Jesus is speaking about something. And in order for us to understand it, we need to understand the context and we need to understand this parable. Here's what's happening in this parable. Here's what would be utterly shocking is the fact that this parable is all about a great reversal. It's all about a great reversal. How does this parable start? Who's in a better position? The rich man. The rich man is well. Things are great. Lazarus is getting licked by dogs, which dogs were, you know, today we love dogs. How many dog owners do we have here? Only a few of you love dogs. Okay. So only a few people here love dogs. Okay. Um, We'll have to start a new campaign. But uh, at that point in time, to be licked by dogs, to be near dogs, that was despicable. That was a very, they were, because, I mean, they were just scavengers, right? So, so Lazarus, is, Lazarus is in such a bad position that the only person who's going to comfort him are dogs, and they're seen as despicable. He wants crumbs from the rich man's table. He can't get them. 
Um, and we see this great reversal that even if we look through this text, Lazarus dies, the rich man dies. One is buried, the other is not, which means Lazarus is out somewhere probably decaying, right? He is in the lowest of low positions, the hardest of hard lives. The rich man is in purple and fine linen, which at that time is like complete royalty, um, he eats sumptuously every day. Uh, our equivalent, five-star restaurants every day. He's just balling like that. He can do that. That's the discrepancy that we have. But then what we find out is what's happening in reality or what happens after these two men die is that things are switched. Now, things are not switched because if you have it good, um, it'll end up bad for you. If you have it bad, it'll end up good for you. Something else is happening. But what is shocking about this parable is that there is a great reversal happening. And we need to understand why and what does that teach us and how does it help us answer this question of hell. One thing we need to see in this parable is that a rich man at this time would likely have been seen, more than likely, would have been seen as being blessed by God. Uh, if you're, depending on your familiarity with the Bible, um, there's a passage um, that Jesus teaches on where he talks about it's, it'll be as, uh, harder, um, it, it's so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's like a camel going through an eye of a needle. Um, and his disciples respond to that um, by saying, well, then who's going to be saved? The reason they have such a strong response to that is because in their mind, every good blessing is from God. So if rich people are rich, they've been blessed by God, but the people who've been uh, uh, assumedly blessed by God are going to have a hard time getting to heaven with God. That makes no sense. So in the context of this culture, the rich man is seen as someone who is likely blessed by God. But Jesus is actually trying to show us something different, right? Does the rich man have a name in this parable? No, he's just the rich man. Does Lazarus have a name in this parable? He does. Do you know that this is the only parable where someone is given a name? Jesus is trying to show a contrast that one person is living rightly out of an identity and the other person has almost lost their humanness. He's trying to show a major contrast here. The rich man, what is your name? Your name is tied to who you are. Your name is tied to your identity. And the rich man's name is what? The rich man. His identity is in his money. His identity is somewhere other than the God who loved him and made him. And remember what Jesus said in 13, the context verses. He says, you can't serve God in money. You can't serve two masters. It will not go well for you. Lazarus, on the other hand, his name means God helps. So poor estate, God helps. So let's. So now that we have that context, um, what we want to do now from here is that this parable should shock you. And it's also, if we look at this rightly, I believe this parable, biblically speaking, will correct the characters that you have of hell or that you've heard about hell. Right? Does everybody here know what a caricature is? Cool. I knew you would. Um, it made me think of, uh, you know, when you go to like a festival, you'll like get your face drawn or something like that. Or if Aaron was down here, Aaron's a really great artist. I think he was doing this at a, uh, at a work party uh, for his wife, just drawing. Um, he could do caricatures for us. And what you do with the caricature is you find one kind of like dominant tra- trait and then you kind of uh, exaggerate it. So for me, what you would do is you take my, my large muscles and then just make them larger. Um, would be a great caricature of me. Um, actually, more accurately, you probably take my large nose and then make it larger. And then you'd see it. Wow, that guy has a really large nose, but I can still recognize he's clawed. 
um, a, a good caricature is going to take something that's kind of true and just blow it up so it becomes kind of funny. Well, here's the, the non-funny thing about our topic is that's pretty much what happens with the teaching of hell is that somebody catches wind of something um, about it and they turn it into a caricature. It just gets, it's something that's kind of true or probably true, but maybe not exactly what you're talking about. And it just gets blown up so that everybody else, when they think about it, they just see the caricature. They don't see what's actually really behind it. This passage will correct our caricatures. Here are the caricatures that you may have of hell, depending on what you've read, depending on how many episodes of The Simpsons or pop culture or Dante's Inferno or what you've looked at. Um, first association with hell is usually fire. Spire. Um, if you actually look at the passages in Scripture, right, if you look at the text, um, you recognize that fire for hell is not a literal thing. It's imagery. It's imagery. Now, what's shocking and, and frightening and should startle us is that it's imagery for something that's probably much worse than fire. Right? But the idea of hell is this underground torture, ta- torture chamber not exactly completely biblical. It's a caricature. We have to look under that and look at what the scriptures actually are really teaching there. Right? So here's what people think about the doctrine of hell. They think that it's an underground torture chamber that God locks you into, and you're banging on a door saying, let me out, let me out, let me out. But God says, too late, door's locked. That's the caricature. That's what a lot of people have in their mind, that God pushes you in, locks the door from the outside against your will, says, take that. But that's a caricature. Now, the biblical reality is that God is pure and he will judge for our wrongdoings against other people and ultimately against him. He will judge them. But the caricature of him putting us into something, locking the door and us saying, let me out. And he says, too late, had your chance, see you later. That's not biblical. That's a caricature. Maybe you've been wounded or hurt by that. And for that, I'm sorry, but that's not biblical. Right, we often think that um, along those lines, we have to think that hell is a place where people are begging for a second chance, and God says, too late, and locks the door from the outside even tighter. That's a caricature. Here's the thing, though. If we actually look at this picture, if we look at this parable, rather, we're going to see that that caricature is not correct, but we're going to see that God does not lock the door to hell or to judgment from the outside, but the door to hell is closed and locked from the inside by the rich man. If we look at this parable, we see God doesn't lock the door from the outside. The rich man closes it and locks it from the inside upon himself. Look at this text. Look at how this parable will actually debunk a lot of these caricatures that we've thought about when it comes to hell. Um, if we look at verse, um, verse 24, a couple things I want us to see here. Look at verse 24. This debunks the whole idea of God locking the door from the outside against our will. Look at verse 24. This is the rich man speaking. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus down to hell to, to basically um, help me feel better. Um, things are not going well. Um, just a brief aside, Abraham, um, the reason Abraham is mentioned here is because of Genesis 15 and the promise. And he's, it's just a, basically a, a, a way of saying uh, heaven and, and God's presence, uh, intimacy with God. Uh, I didn't mention that earlier. Um, 
But 24, look at what's happening here. Look at the rich man's request. What's striking about 24? The rich man is asking for what? He says what? He says, have what on me? He says mercy, right? Now, think about what would normally be asked in that situation, right? If you didn't know this parable and you just got kind of the skeleton story outline and then you heard at this point, okay, at point, uh, at point C or act two of the parable, the rich man who is in hell, he's going to ask for mercy from God. Uh, what do you think that mercy is going to be? And you had to fill in the blank, maybe like a story version of a Mad Lib. You had to fill in the blank. Well, what do you think his, action, his, his request for mercy would be? It would be to get out, right? It would be to get out. What does he ask? He doesn't say, Abraham, let me out. He says, Abraham, send Lazarus down to me. He's not asking to get out. He's not asking for a second chance. He's not asking for mercy to be released. He's not saying, God, I've recognized that that I'm wrong and I am guilty. Would you have mercy on me? Give me another chance. I want to repent and believe. I want to turn to your grace and your Savior. He doesn't ask for that. He says, hey, take that beggar guy that used to sit outside of the door of my house and bring him down here to comfort me and to serve me. Do you see the delusion that's happening here? This is insane. This is crazy. There is something so warped about the rich man here that he is in agony. He is receiving judgment for his sins from God, but he's not concerned with with mercy. He's saying, hey, let that person who's beneath me come down here and help me. What's happening here? The door is not locked from the outside by God. It's locked from the inside by the rich man. And here's what he's getting. Here's what's happening. He's getting the outcome of his own will, his own volition, and his identity that he has built on money rather than being beloved by God. That's what's happening here. And what you see, how you can know that is because there is incredible spiritual stubbornness and denial here all over this passage, but seen at its height right in 24. C.S. Lewis um, went to Oxford, wrote a bunch of books, Christian writer, Chronicles of Narnia, um, a bunch of of different stuff. Um, You see his quotes all over Twitter, all over the T, really bright mind. He's really insightful on this stuff. And here's how he explains the the significance of this um, on on the next slide. Um, Long quote, but, but notice what's here. He says, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start? But he has done so on Calvary. That's the cross where Jesus dies. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that is what he does. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. You see what Lewis is saying here? Right? What he's in, and what he's saying here, the first quote is from his book, Mere Christianity. The second one, there, and, and from there only, it's from uh, uh, an allegory that he wrote called The Great Divorce. He is taking so much from this parable that we're looking at. That the door is not so much locked from the outside by God and we're saying, let me out. You put me here against my will. It's more, it is locked from the inside and we are getting the results of our idolatry, building our life on something other than God and the results of our own will. 
what we see the rich man doing here. What I also want you to notice in verse 24, right? Um, verse 24, we see early in the, early in the parable, um, what, is the rich, what does Lazarus just really want in his, in his normal life? He just wants some scraps from the table, right? You've got to imagine, implied here is that he's in front of this guy's gate every day. So as this guy's going out to eat at his sumptuous places and coming back home, he's seeing Lazarus there every single day. Every single day. It's like somebody panhandling on the corner, like in Davis Square. Like I see the guys that panhandle in Davis Square. I see him every day. Every day. Took one guy to lunch, and I was like, all right, he's going to be my friend now. Next day, he didn't even know who I was. I see him every single day. That's the situation between the rich man and Lazarus. Saw him every single day. All Lazarus wants is some crumbs from the table. He doesn't give them to him. He doesn't have any mercy on him. Nothing. Because the rich man thinks he's better than Lazarus. And what we see happen now as the rich man enters the afterlife, it's the idea, or excuse me, rather, it's the disposition that he thinks he is superior to Lazarus that is just carried on and increased into eternity. The same poisonous attitude of superiority over another human being that he had on earth when he was rich and alive and healthy and heart still beating, that attitude, that sinful disposition, that poisonous um, uh, thought towards another has just increased and carried on into eternity to the point that he is able to say with audacity and arrogance, hey, Abraham, send him down to me. Here's what this teaches us. That same self-centered heart, same self-centered issues that were present in his earthly life are even more present, damaging, and extreme in the afterlife. Here's another C.S. Lewis quote to help us understand this doctrine of hell and what is being taught here. Lewis says this, um, Again, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. This either must be true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I'm going to live only 70 years, but which I'd better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or jealousy is gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which will of itself be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. You see what Lewis is saying there? Lewis is saying that there is a condition within us, there are tendencies within us, there is an idolatry within us that carried on for eternity is in fact hell. We see this with the rich man. The same arrogance, the same idolatry to love money over God and others has now just gotten ex more extreme as he has entered into death, into the life after that. Right? Um, to Pillar, a pastor in New York City, um, draws a lot from Lewis. He, puts, he defines hell in these terms. He says this. He says, it is just a freely chosen identity based on something else besides God going on forever. 
defines it as a freely chosen identity on something, something else besides God going on forever. Less of us locking the door, or less, excuse me, less of God locking the door from the outside and more of us locking it from the inside. Now, I would add to Keller, I think Keller is absolutely right, particularly looking at this text. would also add to this, it's that freely chosen identity, but then it's also God's judgment for our sin and the consequences of that identity coming, coming uh, to us as well. But here's what's really important to get all of this. It helps us understand the caricatures that we have when we think about hell often are not correct. There may be a grain of biblical truth there, at least according to the Bible, if you hold the Bible as, as being true. But there are so many things there that are not. God does not lock the door from the outside and against someone's will as they bang the door down, but we lock it from the inside. Now, here's what I want to show you. And this, may be, um, this is maybe going to be more shocking to you. Hopefully helpful. Hopefully this is helpful. Um, this is going to be more shocking to you. Um, but this is so important not just so we understand what's right, but we also see that hell helps us understand ourselves. When we move past the caricatures and understand it rightly, hell helps us understand ourselves. Right? Think of this Lewis quote. Think of verse 24. Um, right? There are a couple of verses in the Bible um, that, that also illuminate this. There's a passage in Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verse 18 that describes wickedness as a fire. And remember, it said the fires of hell are not literal things. It's not literal. Um, James uh, 3.16 talks about gossip and the hurt that you can do when you gossip against others. And it describes that as being, uh, as gossip in those ways, as the tongue being set on fire by hell. Now, what that helps us understand, going back to the Lewis quote, is that hell is actually the, the power of it, the destructive nature of it, um, uh, con, uh, reflected in that, that, that imagery of fire. We have those things inside ourselves. Right? So when you've done, when you've been gossiped against and it's really hurt you or shamed you or you've done it to somebody else, according to the Bible... That's the power of, that's the destructive, um, disintegrating, damaging power of hell being unleashed. And according to Lewis's quotes and what we see with the rich man, if that goes on unchecked for 70 years, may not notice, but that unchecked for eternity is in fact hell. Here's why this matters. This helps us understand that those sin patterns in our life, those poisonous tendencies in our life, left uncurbed, unredeemed, undealt with, will lead us to be like the rich man. That's what that will lead us to, right? We have great capacity for good, but we also have these seeds of fire in us if us, if we, like the rich man, build our identity on something other than God's love to us in Jesus and his goodness. So, so thinking back to that Lewis quote, what, what are those traits in you that are damaging, that are poisonous, that the Bible would, if you, if you believe in its authority and its inspiration, that, that we'll call sin or idolatry? What are those in you? How have those been destructive to you and to others? What this text also shows us to help us understand our hearts is it shows us the, that the question of identity is absolutely critical. What we build our lives on, what we turn to for ultimate meaning, hope, and significance, that is an absolutely critical question. Because we see for the rich man it was money. And he got the end of his own free choices to the point that he was delusional even in the opportunity of interaction asking for mercy. 
So what this means is, again, think of the context, right? The rich man would have been looked at as a, uh, it was probably a really devout religious person. But Jesus in the verses before says, hey, hey, God knows your heart. God knows your heart. So what hell teaches us, it teaches us how important it is for us to examine our hearts because we know that left to our own devices, we could end up running from God because of these traits within us. So here's the question. Will you examine your heart more deeply than the rich man? Will you examine your heart more deeply than the rich man? Where do you turn for ultimate identity, hope, satisfaction, significance? Is it the career? Is it self-improvement? Is it family? Is it income? Is it progress? Is it comfort? Or is it trusting that God loves you fully and completely as his child because of Christ? Right, so hell helps us understand these things. And here's what's really important. Hell helps us understand that all the atrocities that we look at and we say, I cannot wait for God to judge that, sex trafficking, genocide, helps us understand that God will, in fact, render a verdict on those things. But then hell also helps us examine our hearts because it helps us see, like, wait, I've got traces of damaging things in my own heart. Not to that degree, but left unchecked, these are damaging. Helps us examine our hearts. So what you have to do, if you look at this parable, you look at this text, you have to continually say, hey, I see little flickers of bitterness in my heart. God help me with that. I see a tendency for angry outbursts when things don't go my way. God, give me grace and help for that. I see a tendency to look at other people and only think, okay, here's how they're going to help me advance in my career or my, or my networking. I, look, I tend to look at them as commodities. God help me with that. Because if we keep this parable in mind, we keep Lewis's words in mind, what we're seeing is that those little traces of damaging sinful behavior left unchecked and uncurbed does not take us to a healthier good place. It needs to be dealt with by God's mercy. So we have all that. Um, second, quicker point, and then I want to look at some objections, and then I want to look at um, one, one last thing. So three more things. Um, this will think, Things are getting shockingly increasing, or increasingly shocking through this, through this message. Hopefully um, not in a uh, depressing way. But here's the next shocking statement. Hell actually promotes peace on earth. This teaching, rightly understood, promotes peace on earth. Is that not a shocking statement? <laughs> God lost his mind. Um, it, it actually does. Here's why. Hell promotes peace on earth because it says eventually justice will be served, so violent vengeance is not needed here and now. Violent vengeance is not needed here and now. Right? A lot of times um, this will happen, um, and I actually read about this from uh, in the book, Reason for God, great resource. If you, if you have questions or if this is raising even more questions, um, definitely take that copy. Um, but I read about this in there, illustration from, um, from, from Tim Keller, who I referenced earlier. He talked about um, uh, seeing an interaction between a New York Times reporter and a, a really well-known pastor. And the reporter um, was interacting with the pastor. His first name was Rick and said, you know, Rick, I understand that you are sophisticated enough to hold the, the tension in your mind where you can look at someone who is not a believer 
um, and, and still respect them as a human being. But I wonder if people in your church will look at people who are not Christians or not believers or not saved by Jesus and think, well, those people are condemned. So oppressing them or being uh, uh, derogatory towards them is no big deal. They're, they're condemned. Right, so, so this was her objection to this teaching. And I think what you'll actually see is that rightly understood, this teaching, what Jesus teaches in this passage, again, and maybe I'll mention this to get me off the hook. Jesus teaches this stuff in the passage, not Claude. Um, there, I'm off the hook now. Um, but rightly understood, the, the, the teaching of hell and this text and scripture's teaching on it, if you understand it rightly, it will actually lead to promoting harmony and peace among all peoples. And here's why. I'm going to quote from somebody, uh, a Yale professor, uh, Christian Miroslav Volf, um, who endured the Balkan War in Croatia. So he saw a lot of suffering, a lot of hardship, family members murdered, people raped. He saw these things, experienced these things firsthand. And here are his reflections on hell and how it actually promotes peace and harmony on earth. Here's, here's what he says, another long quote for you. He says this, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance or judgment. My thesis will be unpopular with many in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate. Well, why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword or that God refuses to actually judge, hold people accountable. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is the result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. Here's his paraphrase. If you, believe, if you think belief in a God who does not judge will promote human nonviolence, you're wrong because that belief means there's no final court. And so people who have experienced agonizing injustice, they'll say, no, 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 no. Justice has to be rendered. And if it doesn't come later, I will do it now. And this is from somebody who has seen these things firsthand. Another person who talks about, um, talks about that, um, essentially a, a belief, a, a lack of belief in a God who judges or holds accountable or hell um, is essentially a luxury of, of, of the first world. How many of you have seen the social, social, uh, social, what is the word, social media? Um, and uh, what are these things? Hashtags that... Um, and there's the, what is it, the first, first world problem. How, can you get some hands? I want to give you guys some exercise. Seen first world problems, right? And it's, it's, it's like a social media um, meme um, where basically, oh, first world problem, like my wireless isn't that fast, or first world problem, Netflix won't work. Whereas a third world problem would be, in contrast, um, I have no water, or I can't eat, or my family is dying from disease and we have no medication. It's basically a contrast from saying, um, I, I can, uh, hopefully, given people the benefit of the doubt, a lighthearted way of saying, hey, we've been really fortunate, and our problems are very small. Um, there's another person, another writer, who talks about, essentially, not believing in hell is a luxury of the first world, because if you have seen uh, any type of very difficult suffering, and I'm not saying you can't see that in the first world, maybe you've seen it, maybe something's happened in your life, um, but the reaction to, to that injustice is a desire for justice. 
And if you see enough suffering, violence, the things that Wolf is talking about, your question is not, how can a God of love judge? Your question is, how can a God of love not judge? Your question becomes flipped. Your question becomes flipped. If you, if you are living in a village where you have seen people come and steal people from your village and then burn it down, when you contemplate God, your question is not, well, how could a loving God judge? Your question is, if God is loving, how come he does not strike these people down right now? That becomes your question, right? It's all cultural perspective there. So what that means is if your cultural perspective is that hell seems uh, completely ridiculous and vindictive, one, make sure you're understanding it right because you may not be. But then two, you have to understand that your cultural perspective needs to be questioned just as much as the person in the third world would question, well, how come the loving God is not sending lightning bolts down to these people right now? Right? The person here in the third world, they don't understand that God is a God of mercy, that he extends patience and grace to even the most heinous of people. The person in the first world doesn't understand that God is pure and holy. He will uh, take into account um, what we've done wrong against others and ultimately against him. But then the question is, well, you still may ask this, um, wh why does God need to judge at all? That seems very unloving. Here's what I want to show you, is that God's judgment or his, his wrath um, towards sin, and remember what we've talked about, hell is not just God, uh, it's not God locking the door from the outside, it's us locking it from the inside and also being accountable uh, before God for what we've done in our lives and wrongdoing and rebellion and turning from him. But here's what we need to see is that there is a rightness to God's judgment. Right? A lot of people will think the, the opposite um, uh, of, of anger, um, or that anger is the opposite of love. So when you talk about God judging or being angry over the wrong that we've done um, towards others and towards him, they think, well, that's not loving. But, but anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. Right? If you really love somebody and something wrong, uh, truly heinous happens to them, what's your reaction? Anger. Right? Anger. I remember as a, um, right before I got, right before, um, this is going to be embarrassing, I'll say it anyway. Um, right before we got, uh, I got married, I, um, I would sometimes be in my mind like, yeah, I hope somebody like tries to like, you know, be mean to Kelsey because then I'm going to like punch him in the face and it's going to be awesome. And I'm going to feel like really, it's going to be great. In my mind, I was like, I'm going to kick him in the shin first because um, that really is like one of the best points of attack, truly. Um, and then I'll go from there. So, like, in my mind, I was like, yeah, I hope somebody attacks the object of my love because, like, I'm going to let them have it. Very Christ-like, right? Um, <laughs> the mind of Claude. Um, that was four years ago. I've grown, I hope. Um, right? But the opposite, I mentioned that because the opposite, anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. Right? The things that you love, if they get threatened uh, wrongly, you, you get angry. Right? And, and you notice that when you see, like, you see uh, maybe at a par dinner party, somebody makes a snide car comment to someone's significant other, and then that significant, um, that, that, that spouse, um, who maybe is really tranquil and really calm, like, you just see the teeth come out. And they're like, excuse me, did you just say that to my significant other, right? You see that anger flare up because there's great love there. What we see happening with God's judgment and why he gives us, uh, he takes us to account is, one, he loves us enough to hold us responsible for, for what we do. Then two, he loves us so much that he gets angry when we sin and harm others made in his image. We're meant to help one another flourish. And so when we do wrong to one another, it is anger. It angers God. It's an offense against one another, but ultimately it's an offense against him. And that angers him because he loves his creation. 
So he holds us to account. So it's not the, that, that anger is the opposite of love. Hate is. And when you love something, um, you, will have, you will get angry over how it is threatened, harmed, or, at, or attacked. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of it, um, big and small in word or deed, then that God would honestly would not be very worthy of our attention or our worship. Here's what hell also teaches us, right? How many of you would love to see genocide removed from Earth? Only two, okay, wow, we've got a lot of work to do. Um, only two people. Okay, I know you guys are tired. There's a lot of hand raising in one sermon. Um, I won't do any more for the rest of the year. We're cramming it all into now, um, right? How many of you would love to see that removed from the world? How many of you would love to see an end to sex trafficking? How many, like, go through the list of injustices and harms against humanity? that we want removed from our country, from our city, from our neighborhood, from the world. Hell is the teaching that God one day will actually do that. Right? In order, like we, a lot of times when we think about God, we think, God, set everything right. Just set it all right now. Right? Because the picture of heaven, as an aside, is much closer to what we're experiencing now than a cloud, but it's what we're experiencing now with all of those brokenness, sinness, um, sin, and genocide, and all those things removed, and God at the very center. Right? So we want these things removed. God, take care of them now. What hell teaches is that in order to make the world new, right, whole, perfect, and set the way it's meant to be, is that there has to be some type of um, renewal. There has to be some type of removal. There has to be some type of account, and there has to be some type of judgment to remove those things. And hell is the teaching that God is actually going to take those things out of earth and then bring heaven down to earth, and the world will be as it's meant to be with him at the center. So it means that when we want these things removed, God is promising that he will do those things. What we also have to keep in mind is that though we may not be those type of heinous people, we still have those things in our hearts. We still have that idolatry and those sin, and we're implicated in that as well. But God gives Christ as the way that grace is received. Well, one of my neighbors talked about it this way. Um, she's so, I mean, she's traveled the world. She's like the, the, the smartest woman I've ever met um, after Kelsey. Um, Kelsey's like t- up here, and then she's down there, but she's also really smart. Kelsey's really, really smart too. Um, good catch, Claude. Okay. Um, she said this. We were, um, we had, it was right after the, the Pakistani sh- school shooting. Let me remember that a few weeks ago. Right? This type of thing. Like, and here's the thing. If you read the news, these questions are, are really difficult. Right? If you, if you look up from, uh, from your day-to-day, these are huge issues. And I, I believe hell gives us much comfort Right? Because when we were talking about that at our, at our neighbor's house, we were angry. We were angry. This is wrong. And she made this comment. She said, I believe in heaven so I can believe in hell. She's not a Christian. Um, I think maybe just spiritual, you know, not sure, or maybe just um, kind of happy in the middle or, or combining things. That's her position. But she made this comment, I believe in hell so I can believe in heaven. That was her response to that Pakistani school shooting. Why? Because she sees these things and says that they need to be judged. There needs to be an accounting for them. Hell teaches that there will, and what that means is in the meantime, we work for justice, but we don't have to pick up the sword. We don't have to pick up the sword. Here's the other thing with hell, and I'm going to go through this um, quickly. Uh, a lot of people will say, well, well, it seems like it cancels out God's love. Here's what I want you to hear, is that without God's judgment, without an accounting, his love is meaningless. 
His love is meaningless. A lot of people think that if you get rid of God's judgment or his wrath or that he'll hold account, um, that you'll actually lift up his love, but you'll actually undermine it. You undermine it. It means nothing. It may be inspiring for a moment, but it can't transform your heart anymore. Here's why. You need hell because it shows you, not only is it true and accurate, make sure it's not the character, make sure it's the biblical picture that we've defined, but you need hell to really understand the depths of God's love. You needed to really understand the depths of his love for you. Here's why. Love that is transformative has a cost. This is why um, it's, 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 it's inspiring or significant when you enter, um, enter into a relationship with somebody. Right? If you start dating somebody, you date them for a long time, like, yeah, we've dated for two years. That's, that's kind of significant because it's basically saying, um, ideally, uh, hopefully you've got your head on straight, it's saying, hey, I've excluded the other for you. I've put aside all these others for you. Right? And that's why it's even heightened in marriage. I don't belong to anybody else. I belong to you. Right? So marital love, there's a cost there. It's a turning from whatever and it's saying, it's you. Right? Love has a cost. And love that's transforming, the greater the cost. But one, preacher, one old British preacher used to talk about like this. He said, you need to know the cost of love in order to know how to respond to it. And he would give this illustration. It's a little bit dated because we don't have this happen. But uh, his scenario was that you're at your house or that a friend's at your house and you come and you find out, oh, uh, your friend says, uh, I, got, I got a bill. I got a bill and I paid it for you. It came, in the, it came from the postman and I paid it. And how you're supposed to respond to that, that act of kindness, that act of love, that act of service, well, it all depends on the cost of the bill. Was it a return letter that needed 10 more cents uh, for an appropriate stamp to really go out? If so, you're going to say thank you and then move on and eat your chips or whatever you're going to do. If it's a parking ticket for $50, you know, you may, you may I don't know, a high five or a hug. Like, that's a little bit more of a response. If it's back taxes from the IRS um, for 10 k um, that's amazing, and you're going to jump up and down, and you're going to celebrate. Um, if it was a letter for your student loans for 150 k and they decided, hey, you know what? Let me just cut a check and, and then send that in. I got an extra 150 k lying around. No big deal. I love Claude. Let me do that. If any of you want to do that, please do. Um, but if it's something like that, greater response. The cost of the love determines how you're supposed to respond, Right? What's appropriate? What's right? What's just? What's good? And what we see with hell is that Jesus, on the cross, what he does is he takes it for us. Right? The cross is not just a physical suffering where he, he endures great physical agony, agony, which he does, but it's actually a spiritual atonement. That's what the Bible talks about all over the New Testament. That it's a spiritual atonement where he takes the penalty for our, our idolatry. He takes the, uh, the judgment. He takes God's wrath. He is held accountable for all the wrong that we've done so that we would never have to deal with it. So that we can, the, the doors can be open completely and God can welcome us into his loving embrace as his children. He takes it. Now, if you don't understand that, the cross of Jesus makes little sense. It becomes inspiring, but it doesn't become transforming. Which is why, if we were to go back to the parable and close, if we were to go back to the parable, notice at the end, the man, the rich man thinks, oh, if only I had more information, then everything would be right. Uh, Abraham says, no, 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 no. They have the information. 
And, he, and, and the rich man says, well, if they saw somebody rise from the dead, then surely they'd respond rightly. Abraham says, no, that's not the case. They have the information. They're just missing what the information is about. They're turning from it. They're rejecting it. They don't want it. They want to follow their own agenda and will. And actually what he says is, hey, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they, will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Why? Because the center uh, piece of Moses and the prophets is the gospel of Jesus. It's an act of love with, great co- with a great cost. Rising from the dead is just a miraculous feat. What this parable is teaching us is that a miraculous sign is not the same thing as a great act of love. One may inspire for a moment, the other will transform from the inside out. Listen to this. This is, the, this is from Isaiah, one of the main passages of it. This is prophecy of Jesus. This is what the parable is pointing at. Isaiah 53, 4 says this, Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, smitten by God and afflicted. But it was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us, what? Peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way, like the rich man to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right? He's lifting up Jesus and the great love that he's shown on the cross so that we could be welcomed home to God. That hell would, would be something that we would never deal with, but we would hear and see how it leads us to peace on earth. See how it leads us to examine our hearts. See how it leads us to see the depths of God's love. So think about this. Who's shown you a costly love? And how much greater is the costly love that Jesus offers, shows, manifests when he dies on the cross? It's not so much a great sign of, oh, someone rose from the dead. Yes, amazing. Yes, yes. But don't miss what he's done on the cross. Right? So you must see this. You must grasp this. Even if your faith is weak. Even if your faith is weak. Because this shows you the depths of God's love. There's a lot to think on, a lot to reflect on. Question of identity, where are you looking for that meaning, significance, ultimate hope? Because that can be a dangerous path. See Christ's great costly love on the cross. That's his call in this parable. That's what he wants us to see, that looking at those other things for identity will not lead us to the way, but that his grace and his mercy and the act that he will do prophesied by Moses and the prophets will lead us to his great love and grace. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this parable where we can get some understanding that we can have some of our caricatures corrected. God, this is a big, big topic. So I pray you'd help us um, with understanding, God. Um, God, I pray you would help us to see um, to see your goodness and your, your purity and your wisdom in this. God, that you give Christ as an offer to all freely. And that, God, you holding uh, accountable God, is a, is a good thing that has good results here in the present. God, help us from, um, from seeing you as locking the door from the outside when we're banging on the door and saying, let us, let us free, let us out. But what we see, in fact, that you have come from heaven in Jesus to give us mercy and grace through his work on the cross. And because of that, God, help us examine our hearts. Help us to see Jesus for who he is. Help us to respond rightly. Help us to enjoy the good things that you give us, but not to build our whole meaning and identity on them. Instead, to find our meaning identity in you and the love that you have for us that is unending. 
So we pray this all in Christ's name.